Some of you only need to look across the dinner table to find your closest connection to agriculture. Others of us need to look a little further back to find our farming family. My name is Portia Stewart. All four of my great-grandparents were farmers. But by my grandfather's generation, only my grandfather was still in agriculture. Now, like many Americans, I have no more farmers in my family. This made me wonder, have consumers lost their connection to the land? And have farmers lost their connections with consumers? Let's see if we can make some new connections. Welcome to Overheard, the Farm Journal Livestock podcast that connects the hearts and minds of producers and consumers to preserve our sustainable resources and provide high-quality food. Now it's time for Have You Heard, the latest news in livestock agriculture. I'm joined now by Greg Henderson, Editorial Director for Drovers. Hi, Greg. Good morning. So, Greg, uh, today I want to talk about traceability. And for consumers, what is traceability? What does it mean? Traceability is the uh, uh, idea that we want to trace the animals back from uh, the consumer's plate through the grocery store, through the um, retail outlets to the packing industry all the way through the feedlots to the ranch of origin so that if we have a problem with the product uh, the consumer would have a problem then we can identify what that problem is and identify uh, points to improve the process from the other side uh, the other angle is that producers need traceability in order to if there's a disease outbreak or some other health concern or maybe even a production concern, they need to be able to trace those animals uh, uh, and, and minimize any economic damage from a disease outbreak or other things that could affect the entire industry. We know that the mode of transportation of cattle uh, and as they go through auctions today that cattle can be maybe a thousand miles from where they were sold in a 24 or 36 hour time period. If there's a disease outbreak, we need to know immediately, of course, but we need to be able to trace those animals from a specific location. If we can't do that, that allows the disease, whether it's foot and mouth or maybe some other foreign disease that we're not aware of at this point, can spread rapidly. And that means greater economic uh, harm to all of the industry. Greg, that's really interesting to me from two standpoints. Um, the first is that consumer, like if I pick out beef in, in the supermarket, uh, there's going to be in the future some way for them to be able to tell where that beef came from. We expect at some point in the near future that they will be able to trace it uh, much better than they can now. Uh, not that there's a, a concern about the safety of the product at this point, but because of the way technology is going and the way some of the retail retailers are moving, uh, it's just another demand that they have that, uh, you know, 
we've had a lot of uh, problems with E. coli, right. not just in the beef industry, but in the, in the produce industry. And they need to be able to trace those uh, specific outbreaks to minimize the damage and minimize the concern for consumers. So um, retailers, uh, Amazon, Walmart, Whole Foods, those people uh, that are dependent on data are really going to push that uh, interaction into the beef and, and all uh, livestock industries as well. You know, uh, the other part of that that I, I had not really thought of before it was what you said about the producers. So if I have a cow um, on my operation that leaves my operation, what are all the places and steps to the point that it gets there on somebody's plate? And why, why am I, I, I'm thinking about you, you let that animal go out into the world and you need to know all the places that it's going before it ends up in the, as its final product. Right. So, you know, obviously the calves that are sold directly off the cow that go through an auction market, uh, they may change hands, you know, two or three times before they eventually end up in a feed yard. A uh, study a few years ago that was commissioned, I, I, I believe, by the uh, uh, the beef checkoff to uh, better understand this. But they found that as many as a half a million cattle have wheels under them at any one time. Wow. Meaning that they're either being transported by a farmer in a trailer or maybe they're on a truck from right. Mississippi to to western Kansas to a feedlot, but half a million cattle at any one time have wheels under them. Just think about if, you know, one of those trucks had a disease that was, um, uh, you know, could be devastating to the industry. So that's why it's so important. There's so, so many cattle moving at any one point in time. Right. Now, I know that this industry has uh, embraced this topic. What are livestock producers doing to promote, to promote that traceability right now? Right. So right now, the, the biggest thing is that uh, USDA uh, is trying to re-implement re um, uh, animal disease traceability. And when I say that, that there's since 2013, there has been a program in place that requires uh, uh, sexually intact uh, cattle of 18 months of age or more that are transport transported uh, over state lines to have um, animal disease or animal traceability uh, tags in their ears. And they also have to have a veterinary certificate along right. with those cattle. Um, now USDA says they're going to move to RFID tags. Right. And that begins on January 21, 2023. Uh, also, by December 31 of this year, USDA is going to quit issuing those metal tags. So it's a phase-out program. So we're moving in that direction. Uh, slowly, There's obviously there's resistance at times from certain parts of the industry. We, you know, uh, People believe it's going to cost them more, right. um, which it probably is. Um, but uh, I, I think we need to understand that there are a lot of benefits that come with that as well. And maybe we're not going to be able to sell cattle in the way that we expected to in the past without um, animal disease traceability and RFID tags. So uh, it, it looks like it's it's coming our our way, and that we probably need to embrace this change. I know you've covered this quite exten extensively, but Chipotle is an example of of one of those. Uh, 
cases where we could see the benefits of traceability. Can you tell us a little bit about your coverage on that and what that looked like? Yeah, in 2015, the fall was when um, Chipotle had their E. coli outbreak, right. and uh, it affected many stores. and And uh, don't remember the exact number, but there were hundreds of people that got sick from eating uh, Chipotle, and and uh, their stock plummeted. Uh, their stock was at an all-time high in the summer of 2015, and it went to, you know, it was cut in basically in half. Right. And so Chipotle needed to uh, implement a program to better trace their, their food, and as they say, from seed to plate. And they did that, and, and uh, the E. coli problems were not uh, from the meat necessarily, but they were more from the uh, lettuce and the vegetables that they were using and where they were sourcing them. And they are now paying better, closer attention to where they're coming from and they're tracing them all the way. And and, and so it's, I, I can't say that they have eliminated the E. coli problem. They certainly reduced it tremendously and their stock price has rebounded uh, very well. So uh, co- companies like, uh, corporations like Chipotle and others know how important traceability can be to their bottom line. So uh, what is the thing that consumers need to know about traceability? I think consumers need to understand that while uh, in general, especially in America, their food products are safe, that uh, industry, uh, whether it's the produce industry or the the livestock industry are continually working to make it even safer. Uh, we're working on quality and traceability is just a, another tool in, in our toolbox to try and uh, build a better beef product that is safer and more secure um, for consumers. Um, it has economic ramifications across the industry. Uh, as well as I think it, uh, I believe it's a food security issue, right? Uh, especially when you consider that, uh, you know, we haven't had any instances of terrorism in our food supply, but it's always a possibility. And I think any steps that we uh, take towards that can help um, eliminate uh, terrorism problems or biosecurity problems or just generally making. America an even more secure food uh, country. And finally, what would you recommend producers do as we move into this transition towards more traceability to be prepared? Yeah, I think uh, producers need to understand that uh, changes are coming and that um, it probably is going to cost them a little bit of money. Right. Uh, probably is going to make them a little bit of money if if they can. In fact, um, I think if you use some of the models that uh, have been developed uh, by certain universities, you can uh, understand how using uh, animal ID systems can help you make more money as well as providing the traceback uh, information that the people down the chain want. And when I say make more money, so if you do a better job of identifying the bulls that are the best sires for your herd and the cows that are the best producers in your herd, using animal ID to do those types of things, and, and then the side benefit is the traceability aspect that makes the product safer and more secure. Great. Thank you, Greg. Thank you very much. It was enjoyed. Enjoy it too. <laughs>
Next up, let's meet a millennial. Here, millennial consumers share their feelings about meat and dairy, what they eat, where they shop, and how they make purchasing decisions. Today, I'm joined by Brittany. Hi, Brittany. Hello. So, Brittany, my first question, are you a meat eater? Yes, most definitely. Okay. Multiple times a day. Multiple times a day. What do you like? What is your favorite um, kind of guilty pleasure food? I love bacon. Bacon, yes. yes. Yeah, so I'm a big bacon fan too. In fact, somebody shipped us here recently. They were bacon uh, put into chocolate bars, so bacon and sea salt and dark chocolate. It was amazing. That's I brought awesome. home, my kids are like, this is the best thing you've ever brought us, Mom. Oh, <laughs> that's great. What about dairy? Oh, very much dairy. Um, I drink about a few cups of coffee a day, and it always involves um, milk, skim milk, and then I really love my ice cream and my cheese. Again, just about every meal. Right? <laughs> I love cheese trays. That's like, um, that for me, when I get into the holiday season, we start to have cheese trays around the house, and it's a terrible tragedy because you start out and you think, well, we're just going to eat this, this little cheese tray, but then you run out of crackers, and then, of course, you need more um, crackers to go with the cheese to finish out the cheese. But then you run out of cheese and you still have the crackers left over. So for me, it's a cycle of somewhere between like um, Thanksgiving and maybe middle of January. <laughs> that is just a constant <laughs> cheese tray. So do you have favorite types of cheese? or? Uh, my dad was a former ag teacher, so he would bring home all the leftovers from the dairy foods contest. So we got to try 15 or 20 every year, and so I love all of them. Every time I just get a different flavor at the store. It's just me, so I wish I had more friends that ate a lot of cheese because then I could try more flavors faster. So. Yeah. I love a sharp cheese, like a sharp um, uh, cheddar. Um, my daughter is in love with pepper jack, which I think is hilarious. She likes a little spicy. And then, you know, I just like to kind of hunt around. I think we had this amazing blueberry cheese. It had little bits of blueberry in it, and it was just really good. That so. sounds really good. Um, so what are your food influences? How do you make decisions about what you eat and where you buy it? Yes. So I start with recipes, and I'll pull a few from a website and then go to the store. Uh, as a millennial, everything is kind of fast-paced, so I meal prep a lot on uh, on Saturdays. I'll cook for the whole week, so if the recipe involves a vegetable, looks pretty healthy, and then I can dress it up different ways. So a lot of salads, um, a lot of burrito bowls, um, soup that's really flexible and I right. won't get tired of. So Have you gotten into the whole um, Instapot? No, no, oh, my yeah. friends do. Yeah, so yeah, I it's a, it's really awesome for like um, my husband sometimes likes to make soup for dinner, and you know you're sitting around and it's like oh it's eight thirty I'm hungry when is this gonna be done it, just like that really really super fast uh -huh. okay my sister in law made a stew a beef stew and it was just the most amazing thing I ever ever tasted it treats I think it treats meat really well uh huh tenderizes so, yeah okay yeah good to know so um, what is your favorite guilty pleasure food out of anything oh. I'm going to say probably ice cream. Um, That's a good one. Yes. My friends and I will meet up for, for ice cream pretty regularly. Okay. Do you have a favorite ice cream place or a favorite flavor or does it just depend? I love all fruit flavors. Uh, Brahms is a restaurant chain that I am new to being from Virginia uh, out here in the Midwest. It's right? my favorite Favorite, favorite. Can go multiple times with different folks for ice cream. So, so fruit-based, like strawberry or? Exotic. Exotic, so, yeah. Sherbert's or um, there's raspberry or all kinds. Blackberry's really good. Peach. I, I grew up with I've peach. I've never had blackberry. Yes. Peach sounds really good, too. 
Well, I'm missing out. I need to expand my horizons. I usually go for kind of a plain uh, vanilla, and then I love vanilla bean, and then chocolate. So, yeah. Those are good. Are you a label reader? Yes and no. I don't really follow the trends. I grew up with on the farm with like a, a side of beef in the garden. And so I really try to, that's what I grew up with and that's what I tend to go towards. So I look to see, is there a lot of protein that tells me if it's really doctored up or are there a lot of vegetable nutrients that didn't get cooked out when it got frozen or canned? That's kind of what I decide off of. So. Right. What about, I know there's been a big trend about these kind of subscription boxes. Have you ever looked into those? What are your thoughts? Uh, my friends use them, and they really enjoy it. Um, it works well because millennials are very fast-paced, so I've moved a lot in the last two or three years, and I don't have a lot of spices in my cabinet, or I'm not going to go buy a large container of vinegar when I only need a tablespoon. Right. And so that's what my friends really like about it. I haven't yet. Um, I've looked at them a few times, but it just doesn't fit yet. Thank you, Brittany. So I'm joined now by Brandy Buzzard. Brandy, tell me a little bit about your background and what you're doing now in agriculture. Hi, Portia. Well, I'm excited to be on the show today. And um, in terms of my background, I am a um, first-generation rancher. My husband and I live in southeast Kansas, where we have um, a purebred Gelby and Balancer operation. Um, and then I'm also obviously an agriculture advocate, and I'm a communications professional in the beef industry as well. In terms of education, I many, many years ago went to Fort Scott Community College, and then I, after uh, graduating with my associates, I went on to K-State where I got my bachelor's in animal science and agriculture economics, and then also went on to get my master's in animal science as well. So um, I, there's a whole lot of purple that runs to our family. Go Wildcats, right? That's right. That's exactly right. So you're a self-described ag advocate. Uh, tell us how you see this role and what that means to you. Um, okay, well, basically what being an agriculture advocate means to me is just standing up for my livelihood. Um, I love this ranching lifestyle. We, uh, My husband is from a production background from Ohio, and his, he's like a fifth-generation farmer. His, his, his family um, raises crops and has a beef cattle operation as well, and um, this is our first venture into ranching, having cattle together, and I love this lifestyle, and I don't want to give it up. I think that it's really valuable, and so being an advocate for me is protecting this lifestyle that I care so much about so that my daughter um, can take over the ranch from us later in life, and maybe her kids can take over the ranch from her. I mean, it's all about um, sustaining our lifestyle, basically. Right. You you know, you're making me think, I bet you hear uh, a lot of myths about about um, ranching. Is there one in particular that you hear a lot that really bothers you or that you'd like to kind of bust now? The one I've heard, there's a lot of them, obviously. Right. The one that I've been, the one I hear most often, most recently, is um, centers around beef cattle and greenhouse gas. Right. So there's a big misperception out there that cattle are having a negative impact on our environment, you know, and that we, that it's difficult to raise sustainable beef, which isn't true. Um, Cattle 
are um, responsible for less than 2% of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., and that those numbers come from the Environmental Protection Agency. So right. I'm inclined to to believe them. Um, right. The best source of science with our in our government. So I'm confident in the fact that um, the beef cattle are not only a part of a sustainable diet, but also can be part of a sustainable environment and help restore grasslands and sequester carbon and, and be part of, of a healthy environment. Now, um, you actually, you recently wrote uh, what I think is just a great column uh, for the Drover's publication that was exploring uh, some of the terms we use, terms like educating consumers. You've challenged some of those terms, and that makes me wonder, what, what, what about those words are so cringeworthy to you? Well, specifically talking about the word, uh, the phrase educate consumers, I have been, I have not really liked the word consumer for a long time because I think it, it seeks to separate producers from, from the people, like from consumers, people who buy our products. But in reality, we're all consumers. Right. Um, we're all, we all eat food. So I prefer to think of, you know, our customers as people or customers, or I've even started using the word shoppers because I feel like when we use the word consumer, we are kind of like distancing ourselves or making it seem almost that we are a little bit over them or something like that. And I just don't like that. In terms of education, I think that one, when I, when someone tells me, Hey, let me educate you on this. I, I automatically bristle. I think, you know, why are you being condescending towards me? Or what, what makes you think that I don't already know what you're going to share? So I don't think that we need to stop being advocates and talking with with customers and shoppers, but I think that we need to stop going out in public forums and saying, my goal as an agriculture advocate is to educate consumers. I just think that that, um, I think that the, the mindset that we've had for a long time in the agriculture industry is to share as many facts based on science as we can. Um, and that's great. I w- we want to be talking about science and how our products are healthy and, and that kind of thing. But there's a difference between just shouting facts from a rooftop or a forum and actually caring about what our customers want. Maybe our customers want to know who's producing the food. They want relationships. So I think it's important that instead of just shouting facts, we try to foster relationships and create meaningful conversations in order to build that trust and let people have more of a behind-the-scenes view of where their food comes from. I love that idea of, of developing relationships, and I think that's something you covered in some ways in... I actually learned that from my former colleague, Darren Williams, when I worked at NCBA, and he taught me that very, very early on during my time there, that there's listening to understand and there's listening to be heard. And as humans, our very favorite topic is ourselves. So it's no surprise that when we're having conversations, um, we're just kind of generally waiting for the other person to be quiet so that it's our turn to talk. So that, that's listening to be heard. You're giving that person their fair time in the conversation, knowing that once they stop talking, it's your turn. And that's listening to be heard. Whereas we're going to, have, we're going to be able to have a lot more meaningful relationships if we listen to understand to people. So basically hearing what they say and retaining it and thinking about how that plays into the rock larger role or asking them a question based off of something they said rather than just launching into the next fact or the next story about ourselves. So an example that I've used 
uh, many times when giving presentations is if someone come up, up to you, comes up to you when you're at a maybe a food demo in a grocery store and says, you know, I don't eat a lot of red meat. And then you automatically just jump in with, you know, all these nutrition facts and, you know, shoving these, this information down their throat. But what you could have said is, you know, why don't you eat a lot of red meat? Like what gives you, um, you know, why do you have concerns? And maybe that person was going to say they don't eat a lot of red meat because a member of their family um, has heart disease or passed away or something like that. And the doctor indicated that, told the family that it was because the person ate too much red meat. So their people have reasons for their food choices. And it's important for us to understand those reasons and then try to help people find food choices that they're comfortable with. And if they want to learn more, then yes, we can be there to be that resource. But we shouldn't just assume that every grocery shopper is just hungry for all the information about every single food product. We need to hear them and appreciate what they're looking for. Right. And I think something I heard you said that I really um, I really admire is is the stopping to ask the question uh, of of the consumer instead of uh, jumping to the next step. And that's that's hard in the moment when you when you think, you know, the answer or you know the answer and there's something that you you know, you know how to respond and, you know, the correct information. So um, what's your advice when you're in that moment? How do you um, get to a place where you're open to asking that question? Well, I, I can't sit here and say that I'm perfect at it. I, I struggle every day to listen to understand because if you have to make a conscious effort to listen to what the other person is saying. It's not something that, boom, you just wake up, or I don't feel like it's something you just wake up and automatically you're going to be a great listener. Being a great listener has to do with, you have to work at it. You have to work to communicate well. So um, I think it's important for people, if you're going to go out and have conversations with customers or shoppers, to to keep in mind that everybody has a story and just as much as we want to share our story about how we produce food, other people want to share their story about their family or or how they how they do their grocery shopping or something like that. It's just you have to work to be mindful of, of the conversation. So I don't have an easy fix um, recommendation for you. Just practice, right? I guess, yeah. So uh, I think one of the challenges um, of, of being an advocate for agriculture, I think there can be a level of fatigue where you feel like you are spending a lot of time sharing your message and not feeling necessarily like you're making any movement. But you've got some great examples of how you've helped at least influence those hearts and minds. Can you tell me a little bit about that and, and the results? Well... I mean, so I'm assuming you're talking about the letter with the congresswoman from New York. Correct. Um, but before before I wrote that letter in February, I had been, you know, blogging and having a Facebook page and actively being an advocate for something like 10 years. Right. So, um, you know, fatigue is something that can definitely happen, especially if you're being crit- criticized from all sides. But... I've always just tried to keep in mind that if I post something or I have a conversation or like a live video or something on Instagram and it's just one person learns something or asks me a question or gains some confidence in our food supply, that that one person is worth the fatigue. And, and sometimes you have to step back maybe and, and take a break for a little bit and not push as hard. Um, but I do think that little steps can add up to big actions. So, 
in terms of the letter I wrote to the congresswoman, um, I saw the, the, I guess for those who haven't heard about it, um, I read the Green New Deal when that was released in February and the Associated Frequently Asked Questions document that was released from her office. Right. And, and in it there were some uh, nuances about getting rid of cows. Um, which doesn't sit well with me or with a lot of other producers. Right. So I wrote a letter that I thought that I worked really hard on to be eloquent and to be respectful. And I emailed it to the book. Other people might see it and share it. It would maybe get her attention. So I posted it. um, And it basically crashed my blog intermittently for (laughs) 48 or 72 hours. I would get the blog up and running and then it would crash again pretty pretty quickly afterwards. I mean, it's over two, it's over a quarter million views now. Um, but that wasn't some, uh, you know, I just didn't do that off the cuff with no planning or, or no preparation. I mean, I have been working as, or, you know, trying to be an advocate for, like I said, more than 10 years and trying to understand um, how to connect with people. So I feel like, in, the, in some small way, I did connect with, with some people. I have yet to hear from the congresswoman. However, I did have a lot of people reach out to me in emails and leave comments on the actual blog posts who were not beef producers, who were actually people who buy and eat beef, and they, they either had a question for me about beef sustainability or they wanted to thank me for sharing a little bit. So I did receive criticism, obviously, but I also did accomplish a little tiny bit of the goal which was to kind of shed some light on beef's role in a sustainable environment and a sustainable diet so um but that did not come overnight like i said right done a little bit bit every day try to get to this point where um where i would be able to help people learn more about their food so um between that and then the msnbc film set or like TV interview and the Fox News TV interview. I, I don't know. I don't know how uh, the Congresswoman could have not seen it by now, but I still haven't heard from her. So I guess my main goal wasn't accomplished, but along the way, I hope that I have provided a little bit of insight to other curious beef beef eaters. Right, right. And, and, and you certainly... Um you certainly uh, influenced and, and, and made contact with uh, people outside of who would normally be reading your blog. Yeah, um, well, definitely. So, uh, for example, Vaughn Hilliard, who is the MSNBC, um, the correspondent who came to our ranch, he was not a blog reader of mine. Right. And um, I honestly don't know how he found me because he messaged me on Instagram. Right. Maybe he saw it on Facebook. Maybe he saw it on Facebook and then went through Instagram to get a hold of me. I'm not exactly sure. But I know he wasn't an avid blog, a blog reader, and I don't know what his confidence level was in agriculture or what his even his kind of knowledge base was. But after our interview on the ranch, he came back the next morning with his crew, and they had breakfast with us, and they we sat around the table while we were waiting to find out when the interview would air, and we talked with he and, him and his crew about all sorts of topics, not just beef, but, you know, marketing, labels. We talked about growth hormones, antibiotic use. I mean, we talked about a lot of things. And I know, and they were asking questions. And I, and I know that they left there with a little bit more information about how their food is produced. And they, I think they all ate bacon. 
um, and drank milk while they were there. So um, that's a little win. Right. Maybe not specifically beef, but definitely a win for animal agriculture that they felt comfortable enough with their food to eat bacon and drink milk. So um, I, I definitely think that some people were reached, and hopefully I can continue to to reach people and answer their questions as they come through. So I think one of the hardest parts about what you do is when you put yourself out there uh, with an opinion, uh, you're going to get people who agree with you, you're going to get people who don't agree with you. Um, you, you open a dialogue, which is awesome, but you also, um, uh, you can at times suffer from, I, I guess I would say feedback that is... Um, we know the internet is a place where, yeah, criticism that is like, maybe not fair. Right, right. And and I don't want to bring up trolls or anything like that, but I'm sure that you got some feedback that was negative, uh, um, and and sometimes they sometimes that can be scary too. So how do you how did you handle that, and what would be your advice for others? Well, I'm trying to think back to the comments specifically on the letter to the congresswoman and. There weren't really any attacks on me, although I have been, like, not attacked, like, physically, but I have been attacked online several times, but there weren't any of those this time. There were a couple that were saying, oh, this is nonsense, none of that stuff you're saying about beef and sustainable environment is true, and and that kind of thing, you just have to let roll off your back. I mean, I answer those in a way that says, in in an honest way, where I use scientific facts, and while I understand I'm probably not going to make any headway in terms of a connection with that critic, the person who's criticizing me, all the other people who are reading the blog and the comments are hopefully seeing that interchange and are seeing that the science-based like facts behind it and are hopefully retaining something from that. Um, in terms of criticism, it's so funny you say that because on the article that I that was published today on Drovers and then something on my Facebook page is unrelated about some cows grazing uh, to be negative and nitpick at you for anything because they just, I, I don't know, maybe they don't have anything better to do, but I, um, it's always a struggle for me to determine how much of my time I'm supposed to give that person because there are other people watching when you're replying. So you have to be cognizant of that, but right. and I'm, I'm pretty, out, I'm pretty outspoken. Um, and I stand up for what I believe in and I'm not easily, persuaded to back down when it's something that I'm passionate about. So um, it is a struggle for me to try to determine how much back and forth to go through before I just throw my hands in the air and say, you're not worth my time. Right. I think you make an important distinction there, too, uh, and something that we certainly see, uh, you know, uh, in, uh, as in, as journalists who write for publications is that sometimes you get feedback, and even though you know that it's not um, – necessarily like fair or reasoned or the person isn't trying to communicate they're just really almost shouting at you on the page there is the, there is an importance to um responding not just for that person but for the all the other people who are seeing that comment and and kind of working through it and and being that reasoned person even if you're the only reasoned person in the conversation yes so I mean, I don't necessarily think that I'm the only reasoned person in the conversation, but other people, I mean, everybody, everybody watches, you know, when you're in the public eye, like, for example, that when I wrote that letter to the congresswoman, um, 
it was getting a lot of traffic and there were a lot of people watching the way I was responding to comments. Um, and I'm really proud of the fact that I received, uh, I think it was on Twitter, maybe Facebook, but there were m multiple people saying, look at the way she is responding to comments. And I don't say that in, as a way of pat me on the back or anything, but there was a time five years ago where I would not have responded to those comments as eloquently or as, um, confusing that word, but you know, as professionally or as tactfully as I did. But because I knew and because I know that lots of people watch the way you behave, that, and I'm representing not only myself, but the beef industry in general, um, that you have to be professional and you can't stoop to the level of, um, of maybe the hate or the, the criticism that they're doing. I can't, somebody told me a long time ago, or maybe I read it somewhere, but if someone is being hateful to you or being nasty, like, don't ever let them bring you down to their level because they're better at it than you. Right. You. So I just try to keep that in mind. It's like as soon as someone starts being hateful to me or calls me a name or says I'm stupid or something like that, like I'm done. You know, I, I'm not going to keep engaging in that because that person has no interest in having a real conversation. And there's nothing that uh, there's nothing I can say to make them change their mind. And arguing with someone who is that hateful towards you is just that's just a futile waste of time so um it has taken me a while to arrive at that level of i guess maturity but i do think that it's something that a lot of advocates not a, every advocate should be mindful of the way they respond to comments and um critics because people are watching and if you're an advocate no matter if you have 10 facebook followers or 10,000 facebook followers you are the face of agriculture at that point in time. Right. So you have to behave appropriately. Finally, Brandy, we always ask our guests to help us see the next step where ag can grow and where you can um, where you can uh, improve your operation, improve your communication, and, and improve your outreach. What is one step that you say that you think we could take today to um, change the hearts and minds of uh, of the people who are grocery shoppers? Well, I think I, I tried to give this a little bit of thought in advance, and I may not answer it exactly the way you were thinking the question right? was set up, but I've been seeing this kind of like, oh, phenomenon isn't the right word, but I've been seeing this, I've noticed this trend, and I've noticed that as farmers and ranchers, we want people to believe in science, because we have science on our side showing that, you know, beef is part of a heart-healthy diet. You know, a lean pizza, a lean serving of beef is only 150 calories. It's chock full of vitamins and protein and, and essential vitamins and nutrients. Um, but then sometimes I see um, agriculturalists of all backgrounds and demographics and professions who are hesitant to accept science from other sources. And I always think that's kind of comical because how do we stand here and say that shoppers should believe the science that we're sharing with them, but then we aren't willing to believe the science that's coming from another industry towards us. So I guess my piece of advice is to, um, if you, you have to practice what you preach. If you're going to preach science, you should probably be willing to accept science. Um, and I think that putting yourself in the shoes of a customer, whether it be you're shopping for a truck or food or, I don't know, a new one. So, 
I guess that's my two cents worth on the scientific basis. Great. Thanks for joining us today, Brandy. Thank you so much for having me, Portia. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today on Overheard, the Farm Journal Livestock Podcast. To read more from Brandy, visit drovers.com slash buzzard. We'll see you next time on Overheard.